talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Health Canada will approve the use of the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years of age. Who is left and why do we care? See you at the tie catch game. Here's Scott Thompson. Well, I guess we know it's Ted to pick the tune. But I must say, I have no idea what that is. Of course. And this is the you education have process. Stumped. <laughs> See? Okay, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It is Hamilton today. Yep. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels. Diana Weeks in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Ted Michaels, uh, DJ of the newsroom. Yep. What the heck was that? That, uh, well, when I found out I had a chance to pick the song, Diana said, pick something to beat bouncy so i thought aha so that's the song it is chicago people don't know unless you're oh. a real chicago aficionado you will know that oh, wait, is from sorry, the ted are you a real chicago aficionado? yes just so you know oh okay and now you're starting this is from the seventh album when you look at it it looks like it's in leather it's called mongo nucleosis that's the name oh, of the song? That's yes. the song. It's it's yeah. written by Jimmy Panko, yeah. the trombone player. Uh, and when they play that song in concert, the crowd goes absolutely berserk. Now, so, is this old, new? This is from of... 1974, from oh, their seventh okay. album recorded at the Caribou Ranch, the so famous Caribou that Ranch <laughs> that burned down. But anyway, that's another story. Catchy. So it's a deep-cut classic. Yes. deep-cut classic. Yeah. What they and, do uh, is is they play that song, sorry, in concert right after they do I've Been Searching So Long. So you go kind of that low, searching so long, and then that right, comes up. And it builds. Yeah. So I just thought I'd Very throw that cool. in. Because every time I play that for song song for people, they go, what is that? So what? never mind your, you're the inspiration stuff. This is the stuff that works. <laughs> that is, yeah. See, now you've given see? me. <laughs> you've the given audience me applauds, new- see? You give me a whole new reason to uh, Here to, to investigate the band. See, uh, no, I knew I had. I, I, I you know, there's a big silence there at the beginning, and the mics were on. It's like I don't know it. I don't know. I, I can't think of this. And I initially I thought it might have been the, the beginning of war. And no, it's like no, it's not no. that. It's not that. No. But I knew I'd heard it somewhere, so I probably heard it at your Chicago show. Yeah, probably. Well, they uh, did did play it that night, and did they do it that? So that's where yes, I heard it. Did. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I honestly I did not know the name of it. You have uh, stumped the chump here. Look well, at you go. I'm you know I I try to educate people on a day. I keep telling you people, listen to the old guy. I have a yeah, wealth of knowledge that I'm willing to give before I leave in twenty day. Oh, twenty days. I think anybody that has walked through the newsroom has experienced that ted just saying anyway uh, t- <laughs> uh don't forget tomorrow at uh 3 we spin the wheel of ted oh, okay. uh the top hits of his era <laughs> i'm bringing popcorn bring- <laughs> yeah there you go hey and and diana i want you to be a part of this if you oh, think i'm gonna you can lose ju- if you can jump on this before ted i'd love that ah, that'd be great not with ted's and- music no way <laughs> Yeah, maybe, so, no, so, but maybe you, know, you bring up a very valid point here, Diana. Maybe you know it, but you just don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a closeted <laughs> Chicago fan. <laughs> That's it. There you go. All right. Uh, these guys will all be with us around the big round table coming up after the 430 News. We look forward to that as always. Another jam-packed show. 
uh, coming up this afternoon, and I hope you hang around for it. Love to hear from you. As I mentioned, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Now we, we had the Tim Biebs or the Bieber Balls. Or uh, what else was I calling them? I can't remember what it was. Anyway, now they have like you, you can. They've got accessories. So apparently the fanny pack is back. Didn't know that. You can get a Bieber. <laughs> what do you call that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, of course I am. I always am when I'm talking with you, Scott. So, uh, you know, the Bieber bits or balls or whatever they're called, that is one thing. Uh, now we're talking about a fanny pack and a tote. Well, of course, because what would be, uh, what would this whole promotion be without merch? Is and this good merch, for... Especially when you're dealing with somebody like Justin Bieber, and I'm sure that that yeah. was all part of the deal. But think about it. I mean, has the tr- has you know Tim Hortons really ever sold merch other than their own branded? And I, I I was you know looking back, and I don't think that they have. So you know, in terms of really thinking out of the box and not doing you know promotions of business in the usual way, I think this is a really interesting promotion. And quite frankly, I hope it works for them. Who is it best for? Obviously, they're going for a younger demo. Is it good for him? It's so Canadiana. Well, you know what? Listen, it's obviously good for Justin because, hey, who knows what he's getting paid to do this. But, you know, this is a smart mm. way to talk to a different demographic. So imagine if you're sitting around the boardroom table and, and having a brainstorming session at Tim Hortons and going, we need younger people. They're not coming to the drive-thru and they're not coming into the restaurant. How do we get younger people into Tim Hortons so that they become our customers for life? So you call it sort of a cradle-to-grave strategy, so to speak. So in order to get those young customers who we all bought little hot chocolates for as they were growing up, there's probably not as many from 18 to 24 that are coming in. So you look at this and you think, you know what, let's give this a go. And, you know, we know that they, we know that Justin Bieber appeals to this generation. And I'm interested to see if it works. And, you know, there will be metrics because you'll know how much of the stuff moves. All right. Uh, a Toronto teacher recently made news around Halloween for going to school uh, with a black face, with black face painted on. Uh, and, you know, I think it was by, by 9 or 10 o'clock. Uh, obviously, he had been told uh, to, to, to clean his face. And then uh, the process was on. We find out today uh, or recently that he has, in fact, been fired. Um, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with uh, him being fired, but everybody, uh, including lots I've talked to and have sent emails, have sent me emails. What about the prime minister? Uh, and can this teacher use this in his defense? Isn't that interesting? You know, when I first saw this story, Scott, I thought, what? Hasn't there been enough news about how bad this is? And there, I know, was, yeah. there, there was quite a lag time, right? I mean, this happened at Halloween, and now we're about mid-November, and now he's fired. So I'm wondering if he already used this defense, and maybe that's why that the firing took so long to happen. But honestly, mm. you know, people look at this and they think, well, there's some rules for some people, and there's some rules for other people. Should he be given a reprimand? Should he gone been given um, tolerance training? Uh, should they have done some coaching as opposed to out and out firing? You know, I also think that it all what else plays into this is the parent. 
Because, as you know, as parents of school-aged children, hell hath, hath no fury, like an angry parent. So, mm. you know, that could have been playing into the issue, too. But the larger issue, a larger issue is, is, you know, Justin Trudeau is still prime minister, and this teacher is out of a job. You know, and it seems there's lots of chatter about the teacher, and I don't think anybody will disagree with anything you've said, but there's never any chat about the prime minister or repercussions. We've seen this time and time again, though, haven't we, Scott? I mean, you can start with SNC-Lavalin. You can start with the uh, fashion show in India. You can talk about Omar Khadr. You know, Justin Trudeau has a... a Truth and Reconciliation Day? Pardon? Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Day? Oh, it goes on and on and on. And there's like a Teflon shield around him. But then again, look what's surrounding him. You have a conservative party that's fighting among themselves, that is just basically mm-hmm. self-imploding. You have the Green Party that is no longer being taken seriously by anybody. And Jagmeet Singh's party is worried about what people are going to wear in the House of Commons. So if you've got this, you know, cacophony of noise happening around you, you just sort of like, you know, squeeze in and slip through the middle and continue doing to your job, apparently with no repercussions. Uh, so this is lack of opposition that uh, he's still where he is? I think it's lack of coordinated opposition, because when your eye is off the ball, Scott, such as what's going on with Aaron O'Toole and firing of that the member of caucus, then that takes up all of your day. I mean, you know, you know, think about when you sit down at work and you think, I have a list and this is what I'm going to do, and then all of a sudden the ceiling drops. This is what goes on. And therefore, you know, you have to sort of protect your own party and protect your own reputation. And you basically are taking your eye off the ball of larger issues. And that only benefits your your political rivals. It's amazing there is more coverage about that spat between O'Toole and the senator than there was about this issue. Well, that is true, but that is also very juicy, and that has been coming. That this whole thing has been bubbling up, um, you know, especially when you know there's still a lot of chatter about you know we have to be fully vaccinated to enter the House of Commons. So that you know, when you look at how at the trajectory of a story and what's tolerated and what's not tolerated, perhaps um, th- this uh, senator would not have been uh, booted out of caucus if this uh, whole thing with um, I'm glad you actually hadn't happened before uh, from Kitchener-Waterloo. So, you know, things happen in a timeline. They happen in a trajectory. And because of the timeline of these things, you make decisions differently. So that's why, you know, the conservatives are in the position they are now. But it's certainly not an issue going away. And the other political parties are going, okay, you guys are busy. We'll just go on with our business. Yeah, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, I'll get that. Uh, Thanks for your time and be well. And you too, Scott. Thank you for having me. All right. I want to play some clips from the news conference earlier on today. Ontario uh, Health Minister was there, also the Education Minister, and talking about what is on, on deck, including more testing in pharmacies, uh, massive testing over the Christmas break for the kids, and um, and also changes to some structure. So we'll play you this a, a little bit at a time, but this is uh, what the uh, Minister, Health Minister Elliott had to say in regard to more testing becoming available, uh, also coming to pharmacies. In line with our cautious approach, we are enhancing COVID-19 testing by expanding the number of locations and making the tests more convenient to access for those who need them. These initiatives will add another layer of protection 
as more people head indoors during the winter. We are bringing asymptomatic testing directly to Ontarians. To reduce the risk of transmission over the holiday season, we will be launching a pop-up blitz in higher traffic public settings, such as malls or holiday markets, to provide testing to individuals without symptoms, as well as provide vaccine education. Also, the other big news today, which is really a day ahead of itself and comes tomorrow, and that is that Health Canada will announce that they have approved uh, the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years of age. Uh, from what we understand, uh, the, 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 uh, the health minister said that it, it should be within a few days or uh, perhaps a week after the final approval that the vaccine actually does arrive. They have been stressed that uh, supply should not be an issue. Uh, but the question was asked if Ontario would be ready once we get that approval from Health Canada. We know the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds requires a new product to be received from the supplier. We've been assured that supply will be provided to provinces and territories by the federal government in the days following Health Canada's approval. It could take anywhere from a few days to perhaps a week before we receive doses. And rest assured, we are working very closely with the federal government to ensure that we receive Ontario's supply of the vaccine as soon as possible. And I can promise you, we are ready. As soon as we receive the 5 to 11-year-old supply from the federal government, our public health units and local partners are ready to receive and administer the Pfizer vaccine. Obviously, uh, Ted and Diana will have more on this uh, on the news. Also, in this news or in this news conference was Education Minister Lecce, and uh, one thing that made my ears perk up over and above the testing in the in the clips you're about to hear uh, is they they talked about how uh, the kids have now been in a system where they're only taking two courses a day, and it's a very long, long class. Uh, he announced that coming up. For the winter semester, uh, those uh, schools that were able to do it, that they would go back to the regular classes, the regular class structure, uh, which I know will be great news for uh, kids and parents alike. As you know, I mean, come on, you put a kid in a class, you know, that's one thing, but for two and a half hours, uh, it's pretty hard to keep the attention, obviously. Here's what the education minister had to say. To protect this progress, we must remain vigilant to protect the health and the safety of students by expanding testing options, by providing boards with access to additional resources. We will further protect students and continue to support safer in-person learning. Now with the full support of the Chief Medical Officer of Health and recognizing the high rates of immunization amongst youth in their secondary schools, I'm proud to announce the secondary schools will resume a regular timetable model of four courses a day starting in term two. If a school board has the support of their local public health units to change their timetabling, that approach could happen sooner than February, sooner than term two, um, and they could resume that model prior to the start of the winter semester. All right, so that was the education minister talking about the semesters going back to the regular system, which is, uh, I know, great uh, news for the kids who've had a hard time doing this uh, with one or two classes that were so long. Uh, Will, can we also play the last clip on, this is very interesting too, about take-home PCR kits that are coming up for the holidays. As of this week, our government has been providing take-home PCR self-collection kits. They're being shipped out to school boards right across Ontario as we committed 
to all publicly funded schools for eligible students across all grades. In protecting the hard-fought progress we have achieved, we've tried to make the experience of COVID testing as simple, as, as accessible as possible for parents and families with the aim fundamentally of keeping children in class. To ensure students safely return to class in January following the holidays, we're also pleased to announce that all students will be receiving rapid antigen screening test kits to bring home and to use. Between late November and mid-December, we'll be distributing 11 million rapid antigen screening tests to all publicly funded schools ahead of the winter break for students to take home to help ensure a safe return in January. However, I want to be abundantly clear. Testing is not a replacement for vaccination. That has been a critical fight against COVID-19. There you have it. Uh, news conference earlier today with the health minister and the education minister. Some uh, big changes coming uh, and some good news uh, for students coming over the uh, holidays. And obviously, Ted and Diana will have more on that uh, in the news. Lots to talk about with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, you too. Great choice of song. Thanks for the lead in. Well, you know, I had a feeling you have a little bit to do with that. So there you go. All right. We always like to make people feel at home here. Uh, lots to talk about here, doctor. Let's start with the 72 hour PCR test uh, issue. Many are saying, well, obviously they've been complaining about the PCR test and having to do it. That's a different issue. But what difference does it make if you're there for 72 hours, three days or four days or five days? Uh, does three days matter to five? you got to draw the line somewhere. And, you know, obviously there's data, but then, of course, there's value judgments based on the data. They could have made it 24 or 48 hours. I think mm-hmm. 72 hours is a nice, reasonable time frame. Uh, obviously, you can still be in the United States, get the infection within that window, and bring it back to Canada. Of course it can happen, uh, so people have to be careful. But I think it lowers barriers to travel. We know those PCR tests are also prohibitively expensive. You know, if you're a family of four, a family of five, you want to cross the border, that might be about a thousand bucks to get PCR tests for the family. And and that's not fair. You know, it's, it's not fair if only some people can afford to travel and others can't because you have a prohibitive test that's required to return. I think the 70, dropping it within the 72-hour windows is, is a pretty reasonable step based on where we are where we are in the pandemic right now. So this is about finding the balance when some say, well, how come you can go for the weekend but not the week? It's a finding the balance. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and you still have to have, at this point in time, some negative testing for people who are away longer or for non-Canadians who are coming to Canada. Like, I, I think it's still reasonable. Like, you, you just don't want to have, uh, you know, positive cases flooding, <laughs> flooding the country. Mm. Uh, and there is a lot of travel. Uh, so I, I think this is a happy medium in between. And the other important point, too, is like anything else, you know, Policy will change with time. Policy will adapt with with science, with time. This is not a forever policy. I'm sure we'll see um, evolution of the border policy and testing at the border with time. All right. Tomorrow is Pfizer Kids Friday. It looks like we get the approval from uh, Health Canada for this. How long do you think it's going to take before we can get a good number of uh, the kids uh, vaccinated? Probably not too long. I know when we look at the polling Probably about 50 to 60 percent of uh, families are considering getting their kids vaccinated right away or, you know, shortly after. At least they're amenable to it. So we'll probably see, you know, 
a bunch of people rush out of the gates to get their kids vaccinated. And then like anything else, there'll be an unvaccinated population that will slowly, slowly, slowly get vaccinated. And we'll see that unvaccinated cohort gradually shrink with time. And, you know, like anything else, it, it all provides incremental benefit, incremental safety, uh, obviously to the individuals getting vaccinated, but also to the community around them. Province of Ontario announcing a whole series of testing as we get into the winter months, preparing for those times when we do go indoors and such. Uh, testing now permitted in pharmacies uh, and those that are showing signs of, of perhaps COVID. And some are concerned about testing in pharmacies. What are your thoughts, doctor? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do this right. There's a lot of ways you can do this wrong. I mean, for starters, when we talk about if you're, you know, lowering barriers to diagnostic testing is obviously a good thing. If you can make diagnostic testing more accessible throughout the province, you're doing something right. And of course, we have pharmacies throughout the province. So that's, that's clearly reasonable. Now, of course, implementation is key. You don't want to put anyone at risk. You don't want to put other people in that building at risk. If you have someone who's coughing out a lung, taking their mask off to get a diagnostic test. You obviously can't have them in close proximity to anyone else. So, you know, how how do you implement this? Well, you can set up little tents outside and do the testing outside. We know that's about as safe as it gets. Two years into this pandemic, we know how to create safe indoor spaces. So you can have, for example, a separate entrance, uh, you know, good ventilation, a proper use of PPE, and separate this from uh, from other other shoppers so that it doesn't put anyone at risk. Like, there's a lot of ways to do this right. And, of course, there's ways to do it wrong, and a way to do it wrong is to have all these people in close proximity to, to each other potentially exposing other people to COVID-19 who are, you know, picking up a prescription or, you know, buying a bag of chips. Uh, Education Minister today announcing take-home testing over the holidays where kids will have a series of tests if they choose. Uh, to take home and do over the holidays. Uh, again, some are asking why this was not done earlier. Uh, there, I believe the government's answer was, you know, this is a time when everybody's heading indoors and also with the holidays, more socialization going on. Your thoughts on the take-home testing? This is fantastic. I don't know any other way to, to view it. You're giving out 11 million <laughs> tests. Yeah. Five tests for every kid in school in the province. So they have the ability to test themselves periodically throughout the winter break to create a much safer school environment in January after they've had innumerable potential contacts over the course of a, a holiday. I mean, how else do you look at that? That's a great move. I mean, that's uh, that's really impressive. Uh, pretty forward thinking as well. I'm 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 really impressed with that. Uh, I think it'll also go a long way. Of course, you know, are a hundred percent of those kids going to take those tests? No. But a lot of them are. And uh, and if that helps drive behavior, including preventing some positive uh, individuals from heading back into the school, you're clearly doing something right. I uh, also want to squeeze one more in, doctor. Uh, high school kids back to regular class uh, in the second term post-Christmas. I know a lot of kids were upset with having to do one class or two classes with uh, with long hours and such. Uh, do you have any, any concern about the high school kids going back to a regular class structure? You know, like anything else, you've got to create a safer indoor space. You've got to have good ventilation. You've got to have masking. Uh, it helps if more, you know, these are eligible uh, individuals for vaccination. It helps if they're vaccinated. You can create a safe space for these uh, for these kids and, uh, and prevent transmission in the schools. Um, you know, the key is, like anything else, is implementation. How well is this done? If it's done well, they'll be okay. If it's not done well, we'll probably see some outbreaks. 
Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Isaac, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a good day. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, the Three Amigos Summit is getting underway. The President of Mexico, the United States, and the Canadian Prime Minister all meeting. And the uh, first time, I guess, this has been done uh, in the post-Trump era. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So, Reggie, the big issue or one of the big issues up here was uh, Biden was talking earlier about his uh, EV electric vehicle incentive for Americans saying that they must be built there, including the batteries built there. Uh, that has a lot of Canadians concerned, uh, some saying it could kill the EV industry uh, in Canada. I, I saw that uh, in the news conference right off uh, the top earlier this afternoon, uh, that was one of the questions that I believe a Canadian reporter asked uh, the president right away, whether there was uh, any movement there and he gave a very short answer said something along the lines of you know we've we've just met we're just going to discuss that is there anything you can add to that it has canadians up here a little concerned yeah and look this is a big deal for the president because he ultimately wants to see his economy do well by making it the kind of hub for the automotive industry to come if these are going to be the kind of uh offers and rebates that are offered uh to uh americans but you're right that question was asked and what the president had said back was look uh we haven't talked yet but also adding that this is still making its way through congress this kind of social infrastructure bill is is potentially going for a vote in the next couple of hours so there's not any kind of movement on it outside of this is just a nice to have or a wish for the president. Ultimately, it is likely to pass in the House. It will fail in the Senate, but it is causing uh, a bit of concern uh, in Canada and in Mexico because not only do they feel that it infringes on competition, but it also kind of goes in violation of the newly drafted NAFTA agreement. So uh, it's likely going to be one of the most uh, uh, kind of like hotly discussed uh, uh, events, not only during that bilateral, but during the trilateral as well. Uh, Also hearing that from the deputy prime minister yesterday. How big of an issue is this for Americans, or again, is this one of those that uh, they don't really pay too much attention to? Well, it, look, they're, they're not paying attention to the fact that Canada or Mexico is potentially not in favor uh, of these rebates. What the United States uh, citizens are focused on, mostly because of the conversations coming from their elected representatives, is that this is going to be good for you in the long run. This is going to be better for your uh, for your buck if you are trying to go out and buy an EV, but also that this is better for the U.S. economy in that we can drive up the number of EVs being made in the United States. So this is a spin on the U.S. part to say, look, it's an economic driver for us. Well, ignoring the fact uh, that that it could potentially be uh, economic turmoil for for automotive uh, jobs in Canada and Mexico. Is this one of those issues that by the time this all clears, uh, whatever hurdles it has to, uh, some sort of balance will be found? Well, I mean, look, it's likely that this might not even make its way through the Senate because Mm. there's not enough Democratic support to get all 50 on side for it. So while it's going to pass the House, it's still unclear how this social infrastructure plan is going to move about once it makes its way uh, uh, to the Senate, you know, before it even gets back to the president's desk. So, you know, there's, there's conversations about, you know, what is this going to do for the economy? What could this potentially do to Canada? But ultimately, what is this going to do to the Democratic Party if they're unable to pass it in the first place? So it kind of takes away from the economic look at it back to that divisive politics uh, and kind of inter-party fighting that's happening with Democrats. 
So obviously this is the first time this has happened, didn't happen during the uh, during the Donald Trump era and now is happening first time afterwards. What are the top issues, especially coming out of a pandemic, supply chain, what have you? Uh, is there can we sense some sort of love and and in in these countries really uniting with a with a North American pack here? What are the top issues? Well, I mean, look, it didn't happen during the Trump years because he opted to go kind of ad hoc and do these bilateral meetings at other global events and not make about it uh, with kind of summits in the United States. But this kind of outreach from the White House is kind of showing, at least at the surface level, that the countries are willing to get back into that tradition of working with each other and trying to ensure that, you know, cross-border issues uh, are going to kind of remain on the front burner. Uh, some of the big issues, though, are linked back to the pandemic, and it's kind of a multi-pronged issue. It's the pandemic linked to uh, uh, border issues and a harmonized border policy, specifically when it comes uh, to PCR testing, something the U.S. wants to see rid of in Canada and something Mexico wants to see U.S. airlines get rid of, uh, but mm. also the way the pandemic plays out when it comes to vaccines. The White House saying that uh, this kind of broad vaccine rollout is now going to happen with Canada and Mexico, giving millions of doses to uh, uh, developing nations kind of as a pay it forward after they received vaccines from the United States. We also have pandemic issues when it comes to the economy and linked to the supply chain. And that goes back to the electric vehicles, uh, where President Biden is really trying to push this America first protectionist policy program. Uh, and the prime minister says, well, we can't do that because it gets in the way of this kind of, uh, you know, continental conveyor belt when it comes to making sure our economies are all in line with each other. So these are going to be the big conversations that take place. What we won't get, Scott, is an ability to talk to the president after Afterwards, the White House canceled the press conference that typically takes place. So what you'll end up with are just one-sided readouts of what happened during those conversations. Why is that? Because obviously he didn't feel he didn't look really comfortable during that session earlier today. Well, look, there's pushback from the reporters because last week the White House press secretary said there would be a, uh, a press conference. The White House has had to clean up a couple of comments uh, that the president has made linked to uh, Taiwan, linked to uh, a potential Beijing boycott, uh, 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 rather a boycott of the Olympics next year, uh, and all of a sudden it was taken away. There's been criticism that the president doesn't take enough questions from people who aren't handpicked from the media uh, and not giving you know other nations an opportunity to ask questions that could potentially impact the livelihoods uh, of the people that they're reporting back to, uh, it's an optics problem, uh, and it's being pushed back on by the White House press corps and by the pools that are traveling uh, uh, with the respective leaders. So we won't be able to get to, you know, to read questions, and you simply have to read between the lines with what each government's going to put out. And interesting comments on Beijing, but unfortunately we're out of time. We'll touch on that later. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, talking about the Three Amigos Summit. Watch more on Global News tonight. Thank you, Reggie. Be well. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, the sultry tones of Tiny Tim. Rest in peace. It <laughs> Clearly, you have never watched Insidious, because this song is a horrifying in that movie. I got shivers. <laughs> well, you guys didn't want to go with a Thunderstruck. And uh, we're going to have this out on the air right now, you two. Right, the two of you come down here right now. And I understand that, uh, that Thunderstruck sort of makes it set up like it's a cage match. Yeah. But I... But I picked Thunderstruck because everything I do is parody, right? It, it's like, you know, you, you find the contrast. The contrast is Tiny Tim in a murder scene as a soundtrack. That's contrast. Contrast is playing a cage match song and then bringing in Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, and Will Erskine. 
Which Don't is you think? totally so, not a cage match. So, well, exactly. So that's the whole idea behind playing Thunderstruck. But I think I you guys are see. thinking you've got to come in here and you've got to start fighting with each other uh, and, and start throwing the chairs see, around. Yeah, we just... And know what, no, no. We want to love. What, we want to love. That's what I'm saying. So... So that's the contrast. It's that contrast <laughs> that makes the 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 uh, the ACDC so cool because you're expecting to see you know what's the, the two guys come in and start throwing things around, throw well, throwing each other around, and it's you guys instead. Exactly. <laughs> did anybody did not, did anybody get that joke or was it just me? Um, I don't think we did. All right. <laughs> I, I so, just want to clarify something then. So I, I clearly. Ted, I'm sorry I keyed your car in the parking lot preliminary. I was getting into the mood of it all. I thought what? that this was... Anyways. Uh. So anyway, can we agree on Thunderstruck? Or do you guys hear... And if you want me to change the song, I'll change the song. Hell, I'm letting you guys pick the top hour song. But if it, you know, but I, I just wanted to clarify that, no, you're not supposed to come in here and roll up your sleeves and start beating the bejeebus I didn't know if other. I was supposed to start fighting Ted no, or what's going no, on here. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do that. That's the last thing we want. We got to get the guy to retirement at the end of the uh, December. Or middle of December. Yeah. So if you guys want to keep using t- uh, tiptoe through the tulips, we will. No, that's terrifying. No, that's no. no. See, but you don't want ACDC. Well, now that you explain it, okay. But you see, the the whole Tiny Tim thing, I didn't know anything about the movie. I just know that when the song came out, what it was. It was Herbert Corey who passed away um, was a long time ago, uh, known as Tiny Tim. You know. Mm-hmm. How the heck do you know Tiny Tim's real name? Because I'm... All right, that... in the cage. I want to take the chair to you. That's unbelievable. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do know, again, <laughs> you people again, you people need to listen to the old guy because he has experience in life. Because this, uh, this is valuable information. What okay. is, so what's the real name of Tiny Tim again? Herbert Corey. And he uh, married... Uh... <laughs> Did you get that off of Jeopardy? or? <laughs> no, I just remember. I All right. Remember. Anyway. Let's move on. Yep. It is the round table. It's Ted and Diana and Will and uh, myself and the poll question of the day to start things off. Uh, the PCR test, they're going to give us 72 hours. So now if you're going down your back within 72 hours, you don't have to get the test. However, if you stay longer than that, uh, and we just talked to Dr. Isaac Bogosh on it, he said, I guess you got to find a balance, uh, then then you do have to get it. Does it? Does that make sense to you? What are your thoughts? Ted? Probably, I, I'm thinking what they're thinking is people like snowbirds that stay for a long time in Florida, and then maybe they drive back, you know, go through Alabama and places like that, and then come up. So I kind of understand. But if you're going across on a day trip just to go yeah. and, you know, pick up some, some Bud Light or something, uh, then... So if you're only going three days deep, you're good. You're going five, six, seven days deep. That's a different story. Yeah. Or a month. Yeah. I think. All right, Diana? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, it, sometimes the PCR tests run late, so you end up staying yeah. even longer than the seven than the, the, the allotted time anyway. So it just doesn't make any sense, and it totally defeats the purpose of having the tests, right? So I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't think the PCR tests are long for uh, this world, because if we're at this point, how long before it's extended to a week or a two or whatever? Will, you want to weigh in on this? Uh, I'm just saying it's st- it still makes me squeamish, but I guess they're looking at it as a game of odds, and that makes sense to me, but I'm not going south of the border anytime soon. <laughs> All right. Uh, interesting uh, news conference from the Ontario government, the education minister, the health minister there. Testing of kids over Christmas. Uh, each kid's going to get like five tests to come home. I wonder if these will be shared amongst the family. 
Do you think it'll be just for the kid? Hey, that's not meant for like, you, Like, does Dad. it go in their stocking? I don't understand. <laughs> this is horrid. Hey, that's a great idea. That's Christmas great dinner. Idea. Worse than coal. Here's a test, kids. <laughs> that's a good point. But, you know, think of that. Are you going to, okay, kids, as, as Ted, I think, is alluding to, line up at the table, and before anybody touches the mashed potatoes, everybody gets a Q-tip shoved can in you, the nose. Can you, <laughs> you know, parody here, can you imagine the Griswold family trying to do this at Christmas? Right? You've got a squirrel on the loose. You've got the tree on fire. Uncle Betty, come here. <laughs> oh, man. Or Cousin right. Eddie, whatever. Yeah. So uh, do you have any problem with these going into pharmacies, testing at pharmacies of people who are showing signs? No, because a lot of people are getting uh, COVID shots and getting flu shots, which I did, yeah. uh, at, at pharmacies. So I, I don't understand. You know What, what I have an issue with is um, sometimes daycare, sometimes kids as little as the age of two or three, you know, feeling the sniffles, the parents say, okay, they have to uh, keep them home, and then they have to take them to a doctor to get, you know, so maybe at a, a pharmacy it's easier and quicker. So. Uh, Diana, you want to weigh in on this uh, pharmacy and testing the kids over Christmas? Uh, well, I already don't think the idea of testing the kids over Christmas, sending them home. I don't think that's a good idea. I just, you know, reiterated that. As for the pharmacy stuff, though, I feel so you don't think you don't think test sending the stuff home for ki- with kids over the holidays is a good idea? No, I don't. I don't Why? think it's a good idea. I just, I think it. I don't think it's necessary for the kids, and I just think yeah. it's going to create a lot of problems. How do I use this test? Or it's going to—I just feel like there's going to be some sort a lot of, of fault. A with lot of it. crying at Christmas. A lot Is of that what you- unnecessary <laughs> crying and stress at Christmas. And then the pharmacy thing—I mean, I like the idea, but I just kind of feel like we've had signs on the doors for you know a year now saying, "Don't come in if you have a sore throat, sniffles, headache, cough," and now it's saying. Come in if you have all those. We're going to test you. So it's kind of weird to me a little well, bit. No, I'm with Diana right there. That exact point. It's been so long of stay out of us. Stay away. And then it's now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come in the, come in the back door. Come in the back door. We but put we up are, some drapes. Yeah. We are a lot more vaccinated than we're, we were back We're a lot days. more vaccinated. And it does, it, it on paper, it makes more sense. But I think it's going to be a bit of an emotional hurdle for a lot of people, myself and Diana included. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about testing yourself? Because what do you do? Do you say, here, honey, you take the Q-tip, jab me? <laughs> uh, or do you... You know, do you do it to yourself? What do you do? You, Would you test yourself or do you test your, you test, your family? You test yourself and you film it as a TikTok challenge. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy. You know that's You know the kids you? are going to be chased around yeah. the house with the Q-tip this year. <laughs> around the <Man>. tree. <laughs> oh, and then there's always somebody that takes a baseball bat and wraps it up to make it look like a tooth, uh, yeah. a, uh, a Q-tip and just, you know, it's for fun good. and pictures and stuff. Ted, do you feel comfortable testing yourself or your family member? <laughs> This is Ted you're talking to, a guy who a lot of times uh, on the computer screws up something and the engineers ask me, and I, I don't know what I did. That's you, my ear, Dad. You, you, you don't want me poking anything in any <laughs> ears or nose or throat? No. Uh, I, I would much rather go to a pharmacist who knows what they're doing as opposed to me. Because right. then I'd probably get the wrong results and then I'd panic, so no. Dr. Ted, there is no, no paging Dr. Ted. No. All right, it is uh, 445. Thank you, Roundtable. Great as always. Much appreciated. Thank you to you uh, all for uh, participating. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has announced uh, yesterday plans to make Ontario a significant home for the manufacturing of electric vehicles. Uh, the auto industry putting about $4 billion into to, into Ontario assembly for electric vehicles and hope to sell about 400,000 of these by 2030. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So obviously, uh, we've heard this over the last several months, uh, two new plants coming, I think one in Ingersoll, one in uh, Oakville, in regard to uh, EVs and such. The same time, Three Amigos conference going on, and Biden was asked right off the top by a Canadian reporter, you're going to have these incentives for Americans to buy electric vehicles, but only if these vehicles are assembled and the parts components are from America. What does that do to Canadians, uh, Canada's plans for the EV industry? Well, uh, <laughs> is it just, just poli- it, it, is it just politics or is it realistic? Well, let's just say if he's quite true to his word, it's not great news. Now, let me back this up and say I understand that Mr. Biden and his party do not want to give subsidies to people to buy a German car or a Japanese car or a Korean car. I get that, but. I'd like to think they understand that the North American car industry is highly integrated. As we go to make uh, a Ford, a Chevrolet, what have you, those vehicles sort of pass back and forth the border in various states of completion. I believe the last time I heard this, a total of eight times to get things back and forth. So when you say uh, you're only going to give this incentive for an American car, do you really mean North American? And both Mexico and Canada have an interest in that answer. I'm not quite sure why Doug Ford made this announcement yesterday, but he may have been trying to put additional pressure or give additional context to Justin's Mm -hmm. meeting today with Biden to say that, look, Southern Ontario, there are five different companies that assemble vehicles here in Southern Ontario. The big three have all announced plans. Uh, You mentioned two of them, but there was also Oshawa's planning to be reopened as an electric vehicle hub, uh, uh, again, a little further down the road, middle of this decade. So clearly those incentives could change this quite dramatically, and that's why this summit is so necessary, and clarification is critical. Uh, Can you touch on the Oshawa situation again? Because this is amazing considering the history of this operation. Yeah, well, the Oshawa plant was uh, slated to close. Uh, I wish I was a better car person to tell you the vehicle they used to make there, but uh, the car that they used to make there, but they had decided they'd had enough of that. And against everyone's best wishes, they closed it down. Now they threw a little bone. They said, we're going to have a, a research center in Oshawa. We're going to keep some of the land for a track, a test driving track. But it really seemed like all was over. And then this year, Jerry Diaz and his union meets with all three of these companies, and he gets them to say, no, 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 we're going to invest money now in this location and reopen it as an electric vehicle plant. Also, GM was going to invest money to do batteries. I think it was in Windsor that they were planning to create a battery factory. So you're absolutely right, taken together nearly $4 billion, and that also included some federal money. So let me swing back to Doug Ford for a second, if I can. I I loved what he said yesterday, but if you read it really, really closely, it's not quite clear what Ontario is going to do. Was that an invitation for these car companies to call Ontario and say, Doug, are you prepared to put some money in to help us too? I'm not sure that's what he intended. He also said yesterday that he was uh, open, open to the idea of offering his own financial incentives to encourage people to buy electric cars. Now, Mm. this is quite a turnaround. 
Uh, we used to have those incentives under the Liberal government. Doug Ford got elected. He canceled them all. Yesterday, he tried to clarify his position to say he didn't believe that people should be getting a subsidy to buy a $100,000 automobile, like a top-of-the-line Tesla, but he's now come around to the idea that these more middle-of-the-road kind of vehicles, cheaper vehicles, maybe the government could do that. So I'm curious, this was part two of his auto strategy. There's got to be a part three coming, and I'm guessing it will drop, let's say, maybe in early May, just before the election. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. when we're going to hear about details on those financial incentives. So can Ontario become an electric electric vehicle hub the way it was in the manufacturing at one time? Yes, but it's not in Ontario's control. In other words, Doug Ford can roll out a welcome mat, but he really needs entrepreneurs, private companies who are prepared to make that investment. So, again, what can he do to give them more incentives? Yesterday was big on talk, but short on details. As I say, is he prepared to help invest in some of this technology the way the Ontario government has been prepared to put some investment dollars in? Is he going to give these incentives? He, he didn't say that, so he said the right kinds of things, but really short on the details. But it could happen. Again, we also need this clarification at the Three Amigos Summit or sometime in the next few weeks to make sure that we're not getting locked out of the American market. To make cars in Ontario just for consumption in Canada is not going to be good enough. We need to also be able to get into the American market with them. Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, talking about Ontario's EV auto industry. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Keep forgetting to talk about the Twitter poll question of the day. Uh, jump on board and give us your thoughts. Will, no PCR test uh, for the 72-hour uh, jaunt across the border. Anyway, does that entice you to visit the U.S.? 64% are saying yes. Feel free to jump into that. We will uh, love to hear from you. It is uh, on our Twitter page right now. That's up. All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, lots still uh, to come today, including... Uh, we're going to 6.30 tonight, by the way. I'm uh, going to chat about Line 5. Also going to talk about uh, new testing in Ontario, which has come out, and uh, what that means moving forward. Uh, sort of a plan to get us through the winter months. And uh, obviously talking a lot about supply chain lately. We've heard about that. Now, of course, the situation in British Columbia with the flooding and such has cut off the port of Vancouver. What does that mean for uh, not only those in British Columbia, uh, but those... Uh, Uh, on the rest of uh, Canada as well. We'll have that conversation coming up a little later on. All right, uh, this was fascinating, and you might remember we chatted about this back at Halloween when we talked about a Toronto teacher who uh, showed up with uh, blackface on Halloween. And um, uh, I think by 9 or 10 o'clock, the teacher was removed, told to go home, clean their face, what have you. Uh, but the damage was done and the pictures were out there. And now we are finding out that uh, teacher has been fired. The story very much reminded many of how the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself, faced a scandal when photos of him in blackface surfaced in 2019. Uh, many are asking, and not certainly against the teacher being fired, but why there wasn't more severe consequences for the Prime Minister. Let's bring in Dr. Liam Midzane Gobin, Assistant Professor of Political Science with Brock University, and is with us now. Uh, Liam, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Hi, Scott. I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, I don't think anybody's going to deny that uh, the the uh, the punishment was appropriate for the teacher who uh, decided, after everything we know now, and, and especially with what happened with the prime minister, uh, was fired with blackface for showing blackface at, at Halloween. But many are asking, you know, how how did the prime minister get away with this, especially when there were. Uh, you know, it was more than one occasion. Why one person pays the price, another doesn't? Well, Scott, you know what? It's funny. I actually uh, have been racking my own head about this for the last couple of years since that incident uh, surfaced. I, I remember the feeling really distinctly, kind of seeing the news break and just being um, horrified both at what had happened, obviously, um, but also just the impact it was going to have on people. And uh, I think the kind of biggest thing that I have kind of come to in, over the last couple of years of, of thinking about the prime minister and especially in relation to um, the school in Parkdale is that the institutional context is, is totally different here. Um, and that kind of, I think, helps to explain the kind of severe consequences that we saw with the firing of this individual um, versus really Prime Minister Trudeau seemingly getting away pretty scot-free if, uh, if you're not considering his, his reputation so as an aggressive warrior. So, Liam, I don't want to put words in your mouth. In other words, there's more rules in an institution than there is for the prime minister. Yeah, there are very few, actually, rules for the prime minister. Um, I mean, very clearly, the teacher contravened TDSB policy, and, and that was what led to the firing. Um, there's the question of power, which I hope we can talk a little bit about, because that certainly applies to the prime minister as well. Um, but there really is no policy in the House of Commons for elected members. All of it comes down to what the party will tolerate. And when the leader of the party is the one who's found to have contravened uh, the sort of societal expectations, then at that point it becomes up to the voters. And uh, it seems as though we elected to give him uh, a free pass, so to speak. I talked to someone else about this earlier on, and they brought up an interesting point saying, well, there's nobody else. There's no opposition. So, And that seems to be quite a low bar for me. <laughs> I'm thinking, so just because there's nobody uh, that they feel to replace him or what have you, he gets away scot-free? That just doesn't seem right. And, you know, you can say that the thing about the different institutions, uh, the institution with 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 uh, education and, and not so with the prime minister's office. But some would say the prime minister has as much, especially this one, has as much uh, influence over a student as a teacher may. I'm not sure about as much. I mean, certainly he would know uh, being a former teacher himself. But um, maybe if I can if I can jump back really quickly, um, you had mentioned that there was no other no no one else to kind of take. Justin Trudeau's place at the time. And, and certainly that still seems to be the case at this point. But I also think that it's a caucus problem for the for the liberals as well at that point. Yeah. It wasn't just that, you know, there was nobody to replace them and there was a lot of grumbling among the caucus, but it was that the caucus really at that point closed ranks and said, no, no, he's our guy. I know his heart. Um, you see people like Greg Fergus came out to say that, but Harjit Sajjan was really, really powerful. Bharat Shagar really came out strongly and said, no, he's really good. I've seen the work he does. And so it's it's not even that they kind of were stuck with Justin Trudeau at that point, but it's that they actively tried to keep him in power after that. I think that that really should hang on a lot of their heads quite heavily. Because he was such a viable candidate, not necessarily being right. I think because so he was in a word- position of power at that point, yeah. Well, if you want to expand on that, go ahead, because, you know, at the end of the day, maybe many are looking at this as just simply poor judgment, whereas the others are looking at it. Well, he's a really easily elected candidate and it doesn't matter what he does. 
he'll he'll get elected. So at what point do you balance really poor judgment with, well, he's an electable guy? I think it's almost more than just poor judgment. I mean, he dehumanized an entire group of people and yeah. didn't really seem to understand what he had done at the time. Yeah. Um, but maybe I'm I using mean, the fra- maybe I'm using the phrase poor judgment because anything heavier seems like it's too intense for this because we've let it all go. So we can't yeah. say I can't come out and say to you, Liam, he, what he did was absolutely terrible. But because everybody seemed to say, well, it was okay. No, nah, it's reduced to poor judgment. Well, this is where maybe you and I can say it was absolutely terrible and we would have certainly held him to account, but I'm not sure that uh, Harjit Sajjan did at the time, right? But I mean, I think whether or not it was electability or there's always this phenomenon that happens in elections of you need to rally around the flag. And certainly that flag at that point is the party leader. And of party leaders in Canada, Justin Trudeau is uniquely powerful in his party. Um, He controls the party and he certainly has remade it in his own image and and brought in people who are going to continue that on. And so I think it all kind of um, comes together into a context where it just wasn't possible to to remove him, uh, certainly in an election campaign, as we saw with, with the Greens even earlier this year. I had a young person say on this show, uh, between uh, Aladdin and missing truth and reconciliation, I'm out. These are two major, major, major issues that that just don't seem to stick to them. Yeah, I've got to be honest, it's hard for me to understand how they're not. Um, And it's not just that. It's also, if you remember, um, there were protesters at uh, one of his events um, around for uh, the oil industry and they were Mm -hmm. protesting pipelines. And his only response was to jokingly wave at them and say, thank you for your donation. He just seems to be very callous um, at times like this and doesn't really seem to understand um, the harm he's actually inflicting. And the, I mean, I think, as you were saying before, the, the influence that he wields and the real power that he wields. And without something to back it up in terms of policy implementation, um, which we haven't seen, he's also the prime minister who's had a series of uh, black federal employees uh, sue for discrimination under his watch. Um, and so it, it adds up to, you know, maybe not quite the, the image of the progressive prime minister that we like to, to think that we have. It, it's um yeah it, it just it, it I, i'm amazed i really am that this just keeps going on and and nobody seems to care dr liam midzane gobin with us assistant professor of political science with brock university uh liam as always thank you so much for the time be well thanks so much scott you too stay safe the truth and only the truth this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml all right we certainly know what's happening in the interior of british columbia and how uh difficult it is for them to get around get goods and such because so much of the infrastructure uh has been washed out and such but we don't realize that this has ramifications right the way across the country as the flooding in bc has further strained the supply chain crisis for canadians because the port of vancouver is cut off and the port of vancouver is the only canadian port that exports and receives goods to and from china the country accounted for 34.9 million tons of port of the ports exported and imported cargo in 2020 which makes china by far its largest trading partner how does that get affected once you throw in what we are seeing in the interior of british columbia let's bring in gordon holden director of the china institute professor of political science university of alberta and is with us now gordon thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i am doing well here in the okanagan i just came back from a food store with uh, not a single piece of lettuce or um, or a roll of toilet paper or any kind of fruit or vegetable 
absolutely cleaned out. So it's affecting the interior of BC, but as you noted, uh, the entire country. Uh, and I don't think people realize that, that, uh, that once this, even in this little area in the center of British Columbia, everything else goes through that. And in the end of the day, there's a lot of highways and rail lines that have been cut off. Let's talk about the port itself. Obviously, China, its biggest customer uh, in that respect. So how is this going to affect what happens to the rest of us? Well, it's going to affect us profoundly, particularly over the the, the several days, but even weeks, and, and quite frankly, months, because we knew that there was a backlog in the supply chain. It's as intense in the United States as it was in Canada. Part of this is caused by COVID, Chinese factories slowing down, delays in the ports, delays in getting um, uh, uh, crew for ships. It's a very complicated thing. It's more difficult now. And then getting trucks available, be it Los Angeles or Vancouver. That was already there as a background problem. But now, with rail and highway lines cut, that meant even the material that was flowing through, essential for, let's say, Christmas shopping, etc., that's been slowed. So you're going to see, I think, a backup intensify um, for the entire country. Some of it, if there's enough time, will be rooted through Panama Canal and come up through the East Coast. But those sort of decisions take time. And what you can also end up doing is just shifting a backlog from one port to another. So there aren't really that many options. I mean, when you think about it, you're coming from east to west. Uh, you eliminate British Columbia. It's pretty hard to get to the to the ocean. Uh, we talked about options. Uh, many are talking about trucking down through the United States. But again, we're talking about shipping here. How long does it take to get back down through the Panama Canal and come up the east coast? That could add a couple of weeks. Um, Prince Rupert, I understand, and the CN rail system up uh, through the Yellowhead through Edmonton is still working, but again, it was full out and, con- and congested, so you can't, it doesn't really have the capacity to absorb all of Vancouver Port as well. And again, the problem in the United States is so intense that President Biden had a special initiative for 100 days to try and get things rolling, but there's a lot of bottlenecks, and if you solve one, it doesn't mean you solve the other. So I think mm-hmm. this is a, a crisis. It might be a lesson in there about uh, going forward, an expensive lesson perhaps about reshoring some of that production for essential goods. It may not matter much if Christmas tree decorations or uh, toys, I know it's annoying, um, aren't available or as plentiful, but where it is has to do with essential commodities, pharmaceuticals, etc., that's another story. So we're talking about things coming in from China. What about products going out? Well, that's a big issue as well. Um, uh, again, there are some options from the East Coast, but that can be very expensive. For British Columbia, China is their largest trading partner, and uh, that will hurt, um, whether it's lumber. But most importantly, you touched on this, if it's perishable goods, pork, um, seafood, um, other agricultural goods, um, that and that, and China is a huge part of the agricultural exports from Western Canada. That sort of delays means that China may turn to other, other suppliers. Uh, they have, you know, congestion is already there in both directions, but if they have options, as they often do, from other countries, uh, we may lose market. And sometimes when you lose market share and new supply lines are created, uh, it may take some time, mm. uh, or they may not come back. So there are consequences for our Western producers, particularly in the agricultural side. We know that China relies heavily on Canada, too, as one of their options for energy. Uh, Vancouver's a very large coal port. What about coal going out? 
coal going on is significant. Now, most of the coal that's going to China would be a metallurgical coal. Uh, they, China's got lots of coal, not enough and not in the right places, but they most need metallurgical coal. They're number one steel producer by far, and they need that. So again, you can build, start building in such a complicated timepiece. It's like a very elaborate clock moving pieces, and you start stop one piece, one little wheel, uh, like ports, availability, there's a knock-on effect that begins to affect the global economy uh, with implications and inflation feeding as goods become shorter, uh, they bid up in price. So yes, it works its way through the economy of Canada, of China, and the global economy. I want to ask you uh, something uh, completely off topic here, Gordon. I was watching the news conference. We've only got less than a minute left. I was watching the news conference with President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And the first question he was asked, uh, the uh, the president from a Canadian reporter was in regard to uh, uh, electric vehicles and so on and so forth. And eventually this came around to Beijing. And he, he was asked if there was consideration of boycotting the Beijing Olympics. And he sort of gave a non-answer. What are your thoughts on that? Is, 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 could they still boycott this Olympics? Well, here's the type of boycott I think they're thinking of. I'm pretty confident of this. What they're talking about is a possible diplomatic boycott, which means we're not sending officials to preside over and witness the teams playing. I do not believe, I'm confident on this, that the U.S. is looking at a complete uh, dip, uh, boycott, not sending their athletes. And quite frankly, I'm not sure this is the time to be sending high-level officials uh, to Beijing for a variety of reasons. It's difficult with COVID, but also just that sort of stamp of approval. So I think what, what they may have in mind, we haven't seen it yet, would be a diplomatic boycott, no senior officials from key Western, from the United States and key Western countries. And that, to me, would be perhaps even a sensible thing, but it won't work if the U.S. doesn't do it. Canada doing it alone doesn't make sense. But I think even if it was Canada alone, I can't imagine us right now sending, I don't think, our prime minister or the most senior officials. Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science with the University of Alberta, talking about supply chains and uh, how that is all complicated at the Port of Vancouver by the flooding in British Columbia. Gordon, thanks so much for the time. Take care out there. Uh, I hope you'll do well, and uh, and we're all thinking about you. Well, we're fine. It's uh, the people in the, in the lower mainland I'm worried about, but uh, thank you for that thought, and uh, I'm sure your, your listeners will be doing what they can to help. Thank you. That's Gordon Holden from the University of Alberta. It is 558 News on the way. You know, it's just it's it's just uh, heartbreaking watching these shots of the interior of British Columbia that we're seeing uh, on the news, especially around uh, Merritt and, and Abbotsford. And uh, what's just now really coming out about this story, and of course, you know, they received a tremendous amount of rain in a very, very short period of time. And of course, you can draw in the climate change discussion there and and beat that like a dead horse. But let's be serious about the Fraser Valley. Uh, and again, I've spent some time out west. Uh, it floods a lot, not as much as it has now because of the situation and these bombs, these weather bombs that they're getting. But this, I just read a headline. It said um, that it's going to take weeks for them to pump out Abbotsford. And the reason they have to pump it out is because the water doesn't go anywhere because it's below sea level, because they drained a lake in order to build development there. And then a river south of Canada, south of the British Columbia-U.S. border, overflows. It goes along the floodplain. 
and takes the whole area out. It's like New Orleans. And now they've got to pump it out. It's not like when it rains and then everything eventually subsides. They have to pump it out. It's like New Orleans. It's like the Netherlands and the windmills. And you have to ask yourself, why why on earth are we building developments along floodplains? And I mean, okay, maybe we didn't have a climate change issue 100 years ago. But, you know, anytime you're pumping out lakes to build development, you got to ask yourself if, it's the right, if it is the right decision or not. And when you got to pump out a town because the water won't flow out naturally, it's basically like putting a town inside of a swimming pool. And then it all floods into the swimming pool. And now you got to pump out the swimming pool to see the town. Not very good uh, planning when you think about it. But certainly more than one spoke in this wheel of discussion around what is happening in British Columbia. Let's move on. Uh, and let's talk about some of the uh, developments today in regard to testing and so on with COVID-19. And bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor of occupational and public health, Ryerson University. He is with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yeah, doing well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me back again. Uh, obviously, tomorrow, it looks like Health Canada is going to approve vaccine for kids, uh, Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11. Once this starts, uh, Thomas, and once we start vaccinating this cohort and say it takes 90 days or, or three months or so to get through this, how much of an impact is that going to have on the numbers, whether it's the new cases or the hospital uh, uh, ICU units or whatever, what have you? By the time we say get to March, and, and hopefully by then we'll have this, this cohort vaccinated, how much of an impact is that going to have on, on the whole pandemic? Yeah, well, like I think if we look at the numbers of cases, uh, you know, for, for the, the different age groups, the, the case numbers in the sort of in that age group, the five to eleven age group, aren't, aren't very large in comparison to the say the the twenty twenty mm-hmm. to sort of forty year age group. So so from that perspective, it's it's uh, you know not uh, like like it won't have a huge impact on the overall numbers of cases. That there, there there are still you know a, you know proportionally you know there, there's a reasonably small proportion. I think you know one of the you know reasons why we're uh, interested in doing this is is the potential for the the longer term you know what they're calling the long COVID the the, the mm. potential for long term uh, you know issues for for kids if they uh, if they do get it and so uh, you know I think you know that's it's one of those things where you know the what what we're seeing with the long COVID symptoms. Can be reasonably significant, and and and, and uh, you know the more we know about it, the the more it's uh, starting to become uh, you know more of a concern. And so I think you know trying to protect kids from from getting getting uh, COVID and from from get getting uh, long term symptoms is is what what we're really interested in for for this for that cohort. Obviously, now we can move back and forth across the U.S. border by land, uh, but still a PCR test needed. The government, federal government, has just changed that. If you're over for, if you're over there and back within 72 hours, you do not need a PCR test. If you're staying for longer, then uh, you do. Many are asking, does it make any difference if you're there for three days or five days or seven days? Uh, yeah, I. It it is sort of an interesting one to me. I think. Uh, yeah, I suppose they they have to sort of they're, they're drawing the line somewhere, and and you know it's hard to know is is that really uh, the best you know sort of time frame to draw it on? I you know I don't know. I I 
I don't think it, you know, if you're saying three days versus four days versus five days, I don't think it makes that much difference. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, the, it's uh, it's an evolving landscape in regard to the the uh, requirements. So uh, I think, you know, overall, you know, what, what we'd say is that depending on, you know, if you're going to be there for a short time, you know, you don't, you know, don't need it, but, uh, you know, a longer time, I, you know, you do, but, uh, but obviously, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the short of the timeframe that they want the, the tests uh, done in just complicates matters for people in, in sort of organizing the tests and whatever. So, so I think we, you know, we have to sort of, there's, there's that sort of logistical aspect versus the, and, and practical aspect versus, you know, is it, is it really, really needed for, for such short, uh, short stays across the border. Ontario Health Minister and Education Minister and the top doc, Dr. Moore, had a news conference today and announced uh, their plans as we move into the winter and, and into the colder months and inside, including uh, testing. Uh, kids, when they come home for the holidays, uh, will get up to five tests in order to test themselves uh, over the course of the holidays, uh, concerned about gatherings and then, of course, moving indoors. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, from the perspective that, you know, if you're asking anyone to sort of do their own testing, uh, you know, you that you you have to question that, you know, what's the accuracy of those tests, yeah. and and then you know why why do you need to do it? We know that these uh, sort of rapid antigen tests, uh, even if they're done, you know, with trained people, have a higher rate of both false negatives and false false positive results. So you'd have to say that. Uh, you know, if people are trying to do it at home and, you know, follow the directions on the packet, it's, uh, it's going to, you know, the question of what's the accuracy is, 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 is there, you know, but, you know, I, you know, I suppose what they're really trying to do is, is to uh, ensure that, you know, when kids come back to school, that there's a less likelihood of uh, kids who are, who are, uh, you know, uh, are infectious coming back. And, and so that's, they're really trying to reduce that load of, of possible infected kids coming back and you know I'd, you know you'd like to think that this will work but it it there there are some there are some questions for me about about asking people to do it at home and these these tests have not really been used a lot up until this point and one of the reasons were was cuz you know they they start giving us false positives then we're going to go down a whole other different road is it more needed now considering we're all moving indoors and you know the holidays and such may see more transmission certainly more socialization yeah yeah definitely with uh, you know what we're seeing the case numbers increasing now uh what what is sort of not unexpected but you know, if they keep going the way they're going, it's you know we it's it's going to be a, a substantial load on the on the on the healthcare system, uh, and and definitely with the the colder months and people being indoors, uh, you know, it is going to be you know we are expecting those num- numbers to increase. So so I think we you know we have to do whatever we can to try and uh, sort of identify if someone is is infectious and then you know, keep them isolated uh, from, from others. And, and, and really the only way to do that is, is if they are symptomatic, then to, to get tested. But, but we know that there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic, who are infectious, and, and really that's what the uh, at-home testing for, for the kids are, are, is trying to do, is to, is to pick up those kids who are asymptomatic. And, and we know that, you know, a lot of, a lot of 
the younger age group kids uh, 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 tend to be more asymptomatic than than uh, than the you know adults. So so you know I, like I think it's 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 a positive thing to do it. The the question is will it will, you know how effective will it be? Uh, re- my sense is the reality is if it's even partly effective, then that's a, that's a step forward mm. for us. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, talking about testing and where we are with COVID-19 heading into uh, the holiday season. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks, Scott. Thanks. Thanks very much. Have a great evening. You might remember a while back we were talking about Line 5, and it was odd. It was our friends in Alberta that said, hey, are you guys concerned about Line 5 at all? No, what's that? And there was really no mention of Line 5, and then all of a sudden the Michigan, Michigan governor was going to shut it down, and then there was lots of chatter. And la, 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 la. and then uh, all of a sudden uh, a legal battle started, and now it's crickets. A legal battle between the Canadian company Enbridge and the U.S. state of Michigan over the Enbridge Line Number 5 uh, oil pipeline is to be heard in a federal court, a judge ruled last week, dismissing this week, dismissing a Michigan motion to have the case sent back to their own state court. Line 5 ships 540,000 barrels uh, per day of crude and refined products from Superior, Wisconsin to Sarnia, Ontario, via the Straits of Mackinac in Great uh, in the Great Lakes. Uh, the Michigan governor wanted this shut down last May over concerns that they could uh, have a leak. However, uh, Enbridge has addressed all of that. And now that this has moved to a federal court, we're not really hearing that much about it. Uh, it seems to be lots of uh, commotion when it's shutting it down, but when it stays open, nothing. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. He is with us now. Dan, what are your thoughts on where this has all ended up, considering the storyline here? Well, it, I get the sense that we may have moved uh, this a little bit more in favor of uh, Canada, but that's really uh, not to be determined uh, or not really uh, firm at this point. Uh, you're quite right in pointing out that uh, Michigan had wanted this to be decided by their own courts in their own state based on their own rules. The fact that it's moved to a federal court means that they have to take into consideration international obligations that the United States has. The effect of the, uh, of the uh, treaty, which has been around since 1977, uh, and of course, uh, you know, the whole issue of uh, international uh, usage. Uh, Enbridge is a company registered in Canada and in the United States. And, uh, you know, to demonstrate uh, what the company has done to, you know, to mitigate and to uh, ensure that uh, there would be no problems with that pipeline going forward, as there has not been, at least as far as the waterway is concerned, in the past. And so I think this has sort of made it more positive that we have a a much better understanding as to what court will be dealing with this and one that's probably going to be required to listen to a much broader and much wider um, legal uh, consideration which goes beyond the interests, the the sole selfish interests, if you will, of uh, the state of Michigan. So uh, what are you expecting in a federal court? Like you said, it seems to favor more of Canada uh, because there's obviously a treaty involved here. Uh, Is this because of that treaty a slam dunk or should we still be cautious of this? Oh, I think we need to be very cautious with this. I mean, a court may make a decision. Uh, executive order can change that. But I also think that's why the Prime Minister is uh, one of the three topics he has to raise today uh, is Line 5 and pipelines. And it's not just, of course, Line 5. It's, uh, you know, uh, despite uh, the rather uh, wet noodle approach of the Liberals uh, in uh, when Biden cancelled, uh, you know, the Keystone XL, 
uh, America still needs Canadian oil, like it or not, and that's proven day in, day out by the fact we're paying as much as we are for fuel and that oil is at 80 bucks a barrel and that Americans are producing about a million barrels less than what they did before. So, you know, it. I think it. Uh, it the story itself is, is really a part of a much bigger problem, and that's we've lost track in all of this stuff, COVID, um, climate change, uh, uh, you know, uh, changes in governments. Uh, we've lost notion and lost sight of the fact that energy security was once one of the most prized and coveted pursuits on both sides of the border to ensure that we would not be subject to, you know, the vagaries of dictatorships or, uh, you know, unsavory governments around the world determining for us what an important uh, and and pivotal uh, commodity, uh, how it should be treated and how much we should pay and under what circumstances. So, you know, I think uh, we're getting reconnected with the past in a way that I think uh, provides us with a little bit more clarity. And that's why I'm, I'm a little happier that it's in the federal court. Uh, I mean, we're not out of the woods yet, but it, it certainly is a signal uh, and heading towards the right direction. And here, the federal government has the ability to apply its treaty and say that there would be in a federal court, uh, you know, consideration of international ramifications, whereas, a, you know, a court at a state level in the United States certainly wouldn't take that into consideration, if at all. I only got about a minute left here. How have the B.C. floods added to this discussion? Very hard to say. I mean, I've done a number of interviews with your colleagues uh, uh, on CKNW, your sister station in Vancouver, uh, and it, it's pretty clear that uh, there is likely going to have to be, uh, and this is something I didn't get to share too much, uh, in terms of American control of their waters on something called the Nutsack River, uh, that flows from Washington State into British Columbia and ironically into what's known as the Simis Plain or Abbotsford. Yeah. That's the area uh, where there is flat lands that's once underwater. It looks like that uncontrolled uh, discharge of water as a result of this uh, Pineapple Express, as I guess what they call it meteorologically, uh, had a lot to do with uh, why we saw extensive flooding. And I think it's obviously going to be a topic of discussion between at least Biden and uh, Trudeau. Uh, over the next uh, the course of the next few hours. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the Line 5 saga as it continues now in a federal court. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Bye for now, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for participating today. As always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word this time on supply chains. If we can find a nation or someone to make the whole package, there's your quality control. 